Well, let's give these a round of applause. We're going to ordain them today, and man, we're looking forward to doing this once again. We did in the first hour, but not everybody participated. Uh, you haven't, so we want to participate with that this morning. You know, we looked at the vision of our church last week, and our vision really is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we live, work, play, and go, that the sun would not set on the ministry of Cross Life Church. But you have to have leadership in order to accomplish the vision in life. Now, John Maxwell has probably said it best when he said, everything rises and falls on leadership. And I found that to actually work out, and I believe there's a lot of truth in that statement. Now, you may be saying here this morning, well, pastor, I'm not a deacon. I'm not planning to be a deacon. And so really is this message, does, does, is there anything in this message for me? Well, there is, because all of us lead sometime, somewhere, with someone in life. You may be leading in your family, leading at work. You've got a project that you have to do at work or your career. Somehow you've led, and many of you lead right here in this church. And so as we're looking at this message, we understand, we need to understand right up front, there's a key to leadership, and that is servanthood. It's been said by Max Dupree that above all else, leadership is a position of servanthood. I remember being in a forum, kind of a forum, when I first came here, I've only been here a couple of years, and um, the guy that's going to be preaching for us on Wednesday night during our missions conference that's coming up Wednesday night, Ted Trailer, was on that forum with me. There are three of us, and the other side was Ken Whitten. Many of you may know him as a pastor around Tampa, Florida. Well, both of these guys, big churches, but they've been here a few years ahead of me, and I'm kind of the new guy, and I'm kind of nervous, first forum I've been in, in Florida at least, and so they asked the question, somebody raised their hand, they asked the question, what is the one thing about leadership that you've learned over your career? Well, my career had just gotten started, but I tried to act intelligent, you know? I tried to give them a good answer, and I thought at the end of it, I thought that wasn't bad. Well, Ted gave a better answer, and then Ken, just one word, servanthood. It had a bunch of amens and applause, and I thought, man, I, know, I knew that. I wish I'd have said that, you know? I knew that servanthood. Now, let me share a little story with you I ran across this past week about Bobby Bowden. Many of you know that uh, Bobby Bowden has now fallen in ill health, 91 years old, and has a terminal, terminally ill illness that's going to take his life pretty soon. But Bobby Bowden is known for a couple of things. One is the second winningest coach in collegiate history. He, um, um, he went from you know, there's a few FSU fans. I'm not trying to get, you know, talk. If I was going to talk football, we'd be in SEC. But anyway, come on, talk about that. But FSU, he took over that, for, went from West Virginia to FSU, stayed there from, I think, around 1976, 2009, long time. And he was known for that, being a, such a winning coach. But even more than that, a strong Christian. I don't know if you know this or not, but Bobby Bowden, until recently at least, and maybe still does, every Sunday, he teaches a Sunday school class in his church. He would come back on Saturday night, fly back on Saturday night from a game, so he could teach his Sunday school class on Sunday morning. And he had an impact on so many people in life. Mark Rick, uh, who is, you know, I'm a fan of, of Mark Rick's. He uh, used to go to the same church I went to uh, in Athens, Georgia. And um, 
he, he, in fact, he has Parkinson's disease now. You can pray for him. Strong Christian guy, but he was mopping floors until Bobby Bowden called him out of that and said, you know, look, I can, I can teach you to coach. Just come and be a grad assistant. And it went on from there. But there's this one particular guy, and I, I would pronounce his name, Bob Antion. I'm not sure I'm getting that right. But back in when he was, Bobby Bowden was in West Virginia, um, Bob Antion came up to him and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm at Penn State. Nothing's really happening for me there. I really want to be a grad assistant and get into coaching. And Bobby Bowden said, well, look, uh, why don't you come? Just be on campus. But one of the things you have to do is be a dorm counselor before you can really move up to grad assistant back then at their school, back in the 70s. And so he agreed to do that. Well, Bob showed up. He, uh, he was uh, orientated into the whole thing. And the first meeting he was supposed to go to, he thought it was optional. Well, he would much prefer being on the football field, watching what's going on than being in a meeting. So he skipped the meeting, went to the football practice, and got fired right off the bat. Well, he goes back to Bobby Bowden and says, look, this is what's happened. I didn't know it was required. I really didn't know. And so Bobby Bowden got, put him in the car. They drove down to the bank, and Bobby Bowden opened up a new business, Bobby Bowden Enterprises, wrote out a check for $1,000, gave Bob for he and his family. And he says, I'm opening up a new business and you're the only employee. Went down and bought him a a company car, (laughs) you might say, I guess. And to this day, Bob Antion is still a high school football coach in West Virginia. What Bobby Bowden did, he couldn't do for everybody, but he could do it for one. What he could do, couldn't do for everybody, he could do for one. And I'm not saying this morning that we ought to follow Bobby Bowden. In fact, I want to share with you a man that we can follow in leadership above all others. In fact, he would really be the undisputed, in my opinion, the most powerful and the greatest leader of all time. But he was a man who was born in poverty, never worked himself out of poverty, never had a college education, never, uh, he died young, as a matter of fact. But his followers, which number in the millions, his followers have started more literacy and education uh, places in the United States and other places. Universities began in the United States by, more universities began in the United States by his followers than any other thing. Hospitals started in his name as, as well. Voluntary benevolence and charities, a high regard for human life, the eternal salvation of, of eternal souls. You know who I'm talking about? Anybody care to guess? Jesus, yeah, Jesus. You know, I kind of narrowed it down for you. I I know that. But Jesus, the greatest leader of all time. And if you could describe who Jesus was and his leadership, you would have to say the word servanthood because leadership is all about service and service is all about sacrifice. And we can find this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, in this great book, This chapter is probably the most written about chapter, maybe the most written about chapter in all the Bible because of its deep meanings. And we're not going to necessarily look at the deeper meanings this morning, but I want us to see that it describes the leadership and the kind of leader that Jesus was. And we see three things in this passage. First of all, the heart of the servant leader. Secondly, the attitude of the servant leader. And thirdly, the work of the servant leader. So real quickly, before we ordain these men. First of all, the heart of a servant leader. Look in verse 3 of chapter 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. This is the opposite 
of selfless living. Why do we do the things that we do? Oftentimes, nothing wrong with godly ambition, but it's selfish ambition. After all, has anyone here ever wanted to be the greatest at anything? I want to be the greatest ball player, the greatest singer, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest. Why? Well, because other people could admire you as being a Hall of Famer. Other people could draw close. In fact, other people would serve you if you were only the greatest at your particular field. Now, there's nothing wrong with being the best you can be, you can be. But when you start comparing yourselves to other people and say, I want to be greater than them, this is exactly what this passage is referring to. A selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. We see here the heart of Jesus described, but then in verse 5, it says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, the word mind means exactly that. Your brain, your thinking processes, but oftentimes it refers to the heart of something. And we've said so many times, the heart of a person is the causal core of who they are. It's the place where they make decisions in life. And it's really about who they're going to become in life. The decisions we make today, we become that person tomorrow, determines the person we're going to be tomorrow. But he says here, in this mind and heart, he says, have this mind among yourselves. Verse 6, who though he was in this, the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this word means to exploit. It means that I'm using this to my advantage. And so what Jesus, even though Jesus was God in the flesh, he did not call upon his position in order to lord it over anyone else, in order to take take advantage of them in any way. But it says, rather, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. What does this word mean, empty? Well, this is the theological question. What does it really mean that Jesus emptied himself out? Some people say, well, it can't be that he just wasn't God anymore. It couldn't be this. Could be. I'm just going to give you my educated opinion. I think that uh, it, it hones down on, on what it really is. It means that he emptied himself out of much of his knowledge. We know that. But also much of his power as well while he was here on earth. For example, how many miracles did Jesus really perform before his baptism at the age of 30? None. He didn't do any. But at that baptism, the Holy Spirit of God came to dwell upon him. And the Bible talks about him receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's the encouraging word, folks. The same Holy Spirit that rested upon Jesus, that caused him to perform so many miracles in life, is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you and lives in me. Christ Jesus the Lord was empowered by that third person of the Trinity. Well, he emptied himself out. This is a form of humility. I am not going to rely even on my own power on earth, but the power of the Holy Spirit, rather. And because of that, we can see that he's the doulos, the servant. Now, the word deacon means is the Greek word diakonos, which means one who kicks up the dust, one who looks very quickly for places to serve and sees a need and seizes it. But the word doulos goes a, a little bit deeper than that. And it means becoming the slave of another authority. 
Jesus became, as it were, the slave of his father in order to accomplish his father's will. We can see, as he died on the cross, leadership is service and service is sacrifice. Listen to Mark 10, 45, wonderful verse. For even the son of man, Jesus said, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What, what is Jesus trying to tell us? What is Paul in this book of Philippians trying to tell us? In order to be a leader, you must be trustworthy and credible. People must be willing to follow you. For example, I've said this many times that one definition of faith, one definition of faith is saying I'm better off obeying God and following God than going my own way. Why is that? Well, I trust God. He has credibility. I trust him at his word. I trust his credibility and character. I trust that if I follow him, I'm going to be in a better path. Now, if you and I are going to trust human leadership as well, whether as a, you as a dad, you as a mom, somebody, a coworker at work, I mean, their, their career is on the line, and you come up with something and say, we need to do this. Why should they do that? Well, you know, if, if you're the boss, then they, I guess they have to. But why should they get sold into it? Why should you volunteer at a church like this? Why? Because you trust the leadership. They have credibility and they have you have confidence in them and you think, okay, if I follow this person, I'm better off following the way they live than living my own way. And so we find here the heart of the servant. How is that heart? What does give the credibility? The character. It's love. We love God, then we love people. Matthew 22 says, Teacher, which of the great commandments? Which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and and mind. This is the greatest commandment, first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the pattern here involved. First, you love God. There's a love relationship that you have with God. Reading the Bible, praying, fellowshipping with him, fellowshipping at church and learning and worshiping God and, and have that sense of an encounter with God as you worship and as you hear the word of God. And because of that, because Jesus lives in your heart, the spirit of Christ, we find in Romans 5, 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our heart through the Holy Spirit. So the love of God comes downward to us and then it goes outward to everyone else. Here, the Bible says we love God, we love others, and that's the heart, really, of servanthood. Leadership is service, and service is sacrifice. Now, why don't we, why don't we want to serve others? We've got our own life. You're busy. God, my goodness, you're doing so many things. You know, why in the world should I serve God by serving others We'll say in the local church or even out in the community. Why should I do that? Well, let me ask you this. Why should you serve your children, your grandchildren? You know, we do. most of you would do anything for your children and your grandchildren. Well, let me correct that. You'd do anything for your grandchildren and most things for your children, you know, I guess. No, but really, you would do most anything for your children. Why would you do that? Well, because, first of all, you have a responsibility, Right? You have a responsibility to raise them. But even more than the responsibility is the love that you have for them. Now, that means this. If we're unwilling to serve others, 
and put our self-interest aside by serving others and making sure they are one that led to Christ, making sure they are growing up in Christ, making sure their needs are met, then one of two things have happened. Either you don't sense the responsibility. I mean, after all, everybody's responsibility, as the saying goes, becomes no one's responsibility. Or there's a lack of love there, which goes right back in our relationship with God. Because if our relationship with God is right, we're going to love those around us. Leadership is service. Service is sacrifice. That's the heart of Jesus. But what about the attitude? And I I repeat in verse 5, let this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, literally in the Greek, he says, what, the mind that Christ has, let that be your mind. It all not only speaks to the causal core, but it also speaks of an attitude as well. Verse 7 explains it. It says, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And, and being found in human form, he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So we ask ourselves, why, why in the world should we become uh, a deacon? You know, somebody says, well, you know, really, you know, yeah, I agree with everything the pastor says, but there's deacons in churches and maybe deacons that have been ordained here, and they're thinking, well, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with this, but wow, what an honor. You know, what an, what an honor to be, be a deacon. Well, is that the reason? You know, like the young lady was asked by the counselor, true story. So, you know, what's wrong? And he, he kept prying and prying. Finally, she says, I'm just not beautiful. There's so many girls in our school. There's so much more beautiful than me. And he asked her the question, what, would you, what difference would that make in your life? If you were the most beautiful girl in the school, what difference would that really make in your life? And she thought for a minute, she says, everybody would serve me. And dear friend, if we're looking for people to serve us, that's not what the ministry is all about. Notice this whole word about attitude. It's how you see yourself and respond to life. I I share this uh, illustration a lot of times with our deacons and sometimes in this annual message that we do toward deacons a little bit. And I share the story of the first, one of the first meetings I was in, uh, first deacons meetings I was in when uh, I first came to this church many years ago. And um, we got a marker board, and I said, I want you to think about, ask all the deacons, I want you to think about the person that you most admire. And they thought about it, and I said, now write that name down. They did that, and I said, now you think about the reason, the one reason, the biggest reason why you admire them. And they wrote that down, and I said, let's skip who you admire and just tell me why you admire them. And we put down about, I don't know, 36 different things, I think it was, on the, on the board. And I said, well, let's go back now, and let's put an A beside everyone that's an attitude, and an S beside those that are skill. The score was basically this. 33 of them were attitudes. One was an attitude and a skill. It was evangelism. And the other two were skills. And I said, what you've told me today is that you can be like the person that you most admire. And that's true with everyone here. You cannot choose your circumstances, but we can choose our attitude. And notice he says in, in, the, in verse 6, he says, he didn't grasp it. And again, to, he didn't exploit it, but rather he took steps to greatness. Look at this. Verse 7, he emptied himself. Verse 7 again, he was born in the likeness of men. You notice he went 
more and more and more humble. And being found in the form, he humbled himself. The third thing, he was in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. The fourth thing, he sacrificed on the cross in verse 8 that we read just a few moments ago. And finally in verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Now notice, he emptied himself, humbled himself rather. He took on the form of a slave, a doulos, someone owned by someone else. The likeness of man was upon him. He sacrificed himself on the cross in obedience, obedience to the Lord, and he was exalted in the end. You want to be exalted? Here's what it says. Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now listen very carefully. The name, notice it says in in verse 9, name, or verse 10, the name, every name, and then 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Twice it says the name. Now, why, why do we want to be famous? Why do we want to be the best at something? Why do we want people to serve us? Well, my name. People are going to know me for this. I'm going to have a name. I'm going to have something on maybe a statue or a street named after me. I'm going to have a name that is going to make a difference. Jesus said this. He said, if you humble yourself, if you will empty out yourself and humble yourself as a servant before the Lord, if you will serve and sacrifice in that service, one day, whether it's in this life or the life to come, I will give you a name. I will exalt you in the heavens. That is God's promise to you today. So we look at humility, and we understand that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but just thinking of yourself less, has been said. But he says this. Notice in these verses, he says to, and let me just read this verse to you. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourself. It's kind of a, a picturesque language here. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is called one of the seven deadly sins, I guess, in the Bible. Pride is something today that's admired, and that's what makes it so difficult. You know, you could take good pride in certain things and and then cross the line in something. And not only that, but the world so admires that. You know, the wide receivers now in in the NFL, and you know what they do. They, They write their names on the footballs, throw it in the stands. They do a certain dance. And their, 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 uh, their picture-perfect dance that's just uh, indigenous to, just to them? Why do they do that? You say, well, they just feel a little pride. Well, that's probably true. But they do that to get more endorsements. The more popular they are, the more outrageous they are, the more endorsements they get. Why? Because pride is popular. People, people look up to that. But Jesus does not look up to that. God does not Look up to that. He said, that's, he said, pride goeth before a fall. That was Satan's sin in his life. That's the reason he fell. He wanted to be like the most high God. What does pride do for you? Well, first of all, if you have, an, you have that kind of pride, you will never humble yourself to receive Christ. It keeps you from salvation. And that should be enough. But also, in your mind, you're set above everybody else, or at least others. 
that maybe do not have as much money as you, as much talent as you, as much education as you, as much athletic ability as you have, somewhere in your life, that's something that you take pride in, you look down on others that do not have that. You believe others are there to, to serve you. Not only that, but pride blinds us to the blind spots in our life. We can't, we have a difficult time growing even as a believer. And the reason why we all have blind spots, but we, we can't see them because after all, if I'm that good, then what could be wrong with me? And finally, it really blocks out the voice of God. You just can't hear God. That's why 1 Corinthians tells us the natural man does not hear the things of God. On the other hand, what does humility do for you? Well, it exalts you, but it makes you teachable. It reveals the blind spots in your life. But most of all, to cut the story short, it gives you more grace. Don't you want more grace? You know, grace is anything God gives you. That's the broad, broad definition. The undeserved favor of God. So anything God gives you, any knowledge of him, any gifts from him, is grace. And he says this, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. How are you today? You know, as you're listening to this, where do you stand in all this? Because one of the things we battle all of our life, all of our life, is this whole idea of pride in our life. But here's the thing. How do you come to know Christ? You and I come to know Christ by humility. We really do. I know it's by way of the cross, but it's humbling ourselves at the foot of the cross and saying, God... It's not that, hey, you know, I'm a church member. My goodness, I grew up in church. Now I just need a little bit of Jesus to get me over the hump for salvation. No, you humble yourself and say, God, I'm a sinner, and I know I cannot save myself. I just throw myself before the, th the cross and ask you, would you save me? Then Colossians 2, 6 says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do you walk in him? The same way you receive Jesus in humility. And so let's look then at the byproduct of this. What about the work? Because sooner or later, you need to do something with it. In verse 8, once again, I'm being found in the human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient. What is the work of God? It's not serving God in every single area of life. I mean, it's doing what you have to do at the time. It's pitching in when you, you need to pitch in. You know, it's like one of the best witnesses I've ever had on a plane started with this little small lady. And I'm not being politically incorrect when I say small, I don't think. This uh, vertically challenged, vertically challenged lady had a big suitcase. I mean, it was as big as her. I was getting on a plane and I was sitting there and I thought she needs some help. So I got up and lifted it up and uh, put it in. And the guy was sitting beside looked at me and said, I've never seen that happen before. He's from another country, and, you know, maybe he didn't notice, you know, our courtesy many times and helpfulness in, in, uh, in the U.S. He said, I've never seen that. And so I, I got a chance to talk to him about Jesus. Totally different religion. We do things like that, but, you know, that's not my spiritual gift, lifting suitcases. It's just not it. So we are obedient and the true servant is obedient to the call of God 
whatever that calling in life would be. These men are called to be a deacon. They're being obedient. Notice that Jesus was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. He was a man that was saying, I'm, I'm a slave to the Lord. I'm a slave. And whatever God wants me to do, I'm obedient to him. You know, I was talking to someone not too long ago, another pastor, and said, you know, I'm new at this church, and it's it just kind of strange. He said, I know it's during COVID, but people that, that die, the, the family will call the funeral home, and everything will be arranged, and then they'll call me. I've never had it that way before. It's just the opposite. First, they'll call me. I go visit the home and say, well, you need to call the funeral home. Which one would you like? And I walk them through it. That's what we do. And so how do we get by with, I mean, how, how do we not do that, have to do that very often? Why is it most, most people call us deacon ministry? We have placed a deacon in every single small group. And that deacon is a catalyst for ministry in that small group. They know what's going on before we know what's going on. They let us know, and then we respond to it. Now, sometimes we, on social media, we'll just catch it. Sometimes you'll fill out a card. We hope that you would do that and say, I'm going in for surgery. But the deacon usually catches it, or the teacher, more than any other thing in a small group. And we've had deacons serving this church faithfully ever since I've been here. I mean, we had um, Ken Calhoun, who's been a deacon in the first hour, um, been in this church a little bit longer, I think, than I have. And um, he visited a man in his home, Lynn Klein. Many of you may know Lynn. He's passed away now, but his wife had passed away 10 years before. He was living alone. He was teaching here in our, our church every Sunday, but living alone. He would go out and visit him every week. That's sacrifice. Oftentimes, not since COVID, but oftentimes, I would go into a hospital where an emergency had happened, and the class was already there. I remember one time uh, there was an accident, a motorcycle accident, and uh, <clears throat> Greg Haywood was there with his whole Sunday school class. They had fried chicken, I think, pizza, donuts, all kinds of things. Wow, getting it together lickety-split real fast. I mean, th it, there it was. I was there early. But what we can't do for everyone, our deacons help to do it for more people. They're ministers, servants, your servants right here in the church. Well, what is the work? A willingness to sacrifice? It means this. What can I do to help you? What can, can I do? In my talent, my, I can't help you in any, everything. I'm not going to help you illegally. But what can I do to help you? What can I do? Serve, hospitals, praying, deacons showing up at the funerals, discipling, supporting others, supporting the staff, praying for the staff, sharing Jesus Christ with others, modeling the ministry, forgiving others. Wonderful story. <clears throat> Wonderful story that Jay Strack tells, who's uh, Leadership University, about Timothy Goglin, and uh, if I'm pronouncing that right as well. But Jay is a good friend, good friend of the church, in fact. And uh, been, we've been sending our, our young people to, uh, uh, to his student leadership university for many, many years. But he tells a story about Timothy Goldman, who was working in the George W. Bush White House. And he was asking in the book that he wrote <clears throat> what 
are your impressions of George W. Bush? And he said, he's the most in, uh, man of integrity I've ever met. He said, he's a strong Christian, genuine guy. But he said, let me tell you a story about George W. Bush. He said, I was working in the office, but I also was working on the side at a newspaper. And I'd written some stories and I did something. And I won't, <clears throat> you know, basically he did something that wasn't illegal, but it was unethical. And he got fired for it. Embarrassed, of course, the White House and the president. And there, there is a longstanding thing that goes on in the White House, at least up to that point, that when you embarrass the president, they, they distance you from the situation. Well, President Bush called him in the office, he said. And he said, look, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sorry for what I did. It was a bad mistake. I knew, I knew better. And he says, really, he, says, he looked at him and said, Timothy, I forgive you. He said, but you don't understand. It was, no, I forgive you. He sat down in his chair, George Bush's chair, President Bush's chair, and they talked. He said, listen, what I want you to do, Timothy, I want you to bring your children and your wife in to the Oval Office. I want to talk to them. And so the next day he brought them in. He gave the kids gifts, wife too, I think. They all sat down, and he explained to them what a wonderful man their dad was. But he couldn't do that for everybody. But he did it for one. A servant's heart. Dr. Martin Luther King had a great uh, quote. One of my favorites that he ever made. And uh, you're going to have to help me with this, right? I mean, I tell you to say something, you're going to say it back. Just like Dr. King when he preached. I mean, it's right here. I have to do it. It's in the quote. You got it? It's in the quote. Everybody can be great. You say Everybody. Because everybody can serve. You say, amen. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. And you say, all right. Now, after that, there's nothing here. So you'll just have to use your own imagination. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second law of thermodynamics in physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul gener generated by love, and you can be that servant. What about you? Amen. That's a great quote. What about you? It says this, and I close in these last couple of verses. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you know what this verse is saying is everybody here has something in common. Everybody in the world has something in common. Everybody that's ever lived has something in common. One day, every single one of us will bow before the Lord and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, the problem is this. If you do that for the first time on the other side of the grave, it's going to be too late for you. Too late for salvation, too late for heaven. That decision has to be made on this side of the grave. And if you've never made that decision, know this. You can trust Jesus. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life.
Have you ever made that decision? Today, let's make that, all right? Heads bowed, eyes closed. No one looking around. Just pray this prayer with me. If this is the prayer of your heart, would you pray with me right now? Lord God, I know that I'm a sinner and I am separated from you. But I know that Jesus died on the cross for me and I receive him into my heart and proclaim him Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, would you look this way? Those of you who are watching by uh, television in some way, please pay attention to this also, okay? Yeah, we have a welcome card here. It looks like this. And on the back, it says, my decision today. And it says, I've decided to surrender my life to Christ and begin a personal relationship with him. If you receive Christ, put a little check in that box. Make sure we get this card as you leave today in one of these little offering um, stations that we have as you leave. If you're online or on television, the QR code is the way to go, or just simply go online and download this card and communicate with us. We want to know that you made that decision for the Lord today so we can help you. And then this morning, as we uh, think about the ordination of these deacons, I'm going to ask you to ask the yoke fellow, that's what we're calling the deacons in training, uh, to begin to come even right now. And guys, if you'll start coming as well, um, these are the men that we're ordaining today. Some people may argue, well, isn't this sort of a man-made thing? Well, the ordination part maybe is, the special service, all that. But the laying on of hands is very scriptural. And it's the laying on of hands of those who have been laid, their hands have been laid on before, they've been ordained before, passing that ministry on to the next generation, you might say, of ministers. And so as these men come, these deacons and these staff that have already been ordained are going to be praying over them. And as they do that, I would invite you to pray right there in your seat. Silently, and in just a few moments then, I'll close in prayer. Gentlemen.
Father, we come to you in prayer in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for these men who have gone through training, first nominated by their peers, gone through the training, they've come so far, and now, after being vetted by the deacons that are standing before us today, they are now committing themselves to becoming servants of God through the deacons' ministry. God, we pray for them. Pray that you would give them wisdom as they will need it. I pray, God, that your anointing power of the Holy Spirit would be upon their life. And, Lord, we pray that you would bless them in their life. Bless them for the ministry that they're doing. In fact, enlarge their ministry. Anoint them and keep them from evil. Lord, we pray that you protect their hearts, protect their lives, protect their families. They would be able to continue to serve you. We pray, God, that um, they would look ahead and, and never, never lose the zeal that I know they're going to have when they begin. I pray, God, that you would guard them from discouragement, but encourage them every day as they see lives being changed right before them. And we'll pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All God's people said, thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.